state legislatures really do want to see more investment and are recognizing that limiting investment is not the way to get more investment. Welcome to episode 368 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. There's a lot of local internet infrastructure investment going on these days. But in some states, local communities have to overcome state laws that make investment more difficult, and in some cases may even ban that investment. If your community is looking into a municipal network solution to improve local connectivity, you may have seen conflicting reports about whether or not your state maintains barriers to local community networks. If you've been researching recently and noticed that several states have made changes, you may be more confused than ever. In this episode of the podcast, Christopher and our communication specialist, Jess Delfiaco, address that confusion. They talk about how different sources report on what is a barrier and what we define as barriers. We've made some changes to our list this year. Christopher explains why we've reduced the number of states that we consider maintaining preemptive laws to local telecommunications authority. If you want to learn more details about the remaining 19 states with preemptions in place, we recommend checking out Ballard.com's resource library. Their document titled State Restrictions on Community Broadband Services or Other Public Communications Initiatives offers a state-by-state explanation of each preemptive barrier. We'll also provide a link on the podcast page. Now here's Christopher and Jess on state preemption. Welcome to another episode of the... Uh, hold on, Chris. What? I think we could improve this intro a little bit. Not possible. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is your host, Jess Delfiaco at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in I don't think Travis is going to like that. <laughs> well, too bad we don't have an audience of one here for the podcast. We have an audience of one person who's ever commented on the intro. <laughs> Travis, we can we double love you. that one day. So I'm here to talk to Chris about uh, state restrictions on community broadband efforts. That's right, because there's a little bit of confusion out there, and we thought it was a good time to set the record straight and also maybe talk a little bit more in depth about the things that we talk about every day in the office, but probably y'all don't think about as much or um, just, you know, you may be wondering why we have made certain decisions and thought this was a good time to do it. And um, our friend, um, Jim Baller, the attorney who is there for the very first municipal broadband network, recently revised his list of the barriers to municipal broadband. And so we tried to time this to come out and uh, build on that. Yeah. So the number that we're working with here is 19 states with these restrictions. That is our count. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does this differ from the Broadband Now list, Chris? Could we get into that a little bit? Sure. So Broadband Now, uh, broadbandnow.com is a very good organization that I like, and we uh, regularly cite them. They've done a really good job of compiling information, often from flawed places. So if you find errors, it's not their fault. <laughs> the fact that they are combining lots of different data sets that have errors in them. They've recently done a report about municipal broadband preemption, and I very much support their their efforts, but they come up with something which I think has been confusing people, which is 26 states that I might say, get in the way of municipal broadband. And so that number 26 has been popping around in a couple of places. And again, this was kind of a motivation for us to do this is that we thought it was worth revisiting our list, talking about what we're measuring and saying that we don't think that that 26 number um, is the one that we should use because I think it's a little bit less accurate for what most of us mean when we're talking about these kinds of barriers. So what exactly do we mean? 
What's our definition? Oh, the hard question is starting so early. <laughs> um, so I think our question is where states are uniquely putting limits on local governments that want to improve internet access. Um, you know, it's it's where the state is using uh, its power to limit what cities can do legally, what their authority is. You know, I don't want to go too far down this, I think, fascinating history of cities and where they get their powers from and this and that. But cities um, are considered subdivisions of states. And broadly, um, there are two categories of states, a Dillon's rule state or a home rule state. In practice, there's all kinds of shades in between. <laughs> it's very confusing for different sizes of cities in, in many cases. But the question is whether a city can just do what it wants or whether it has to seek authorization from the state. And so this is already an area in which it's complicated because if you're in a Dillon rule state, then if you want to do anything like municipal broadband, you may have to get permission from the state. Now, even if you're a home rule city, which would mean you have broader powers, if the state says you can't do something, then you can't do that thing. And so, again, we're looking in our list of 19 at states that have emphatically said cities cannot do this. And so, you know, there may be states in which a, a city functionally can't do the same thing. We haven't done that level of analysis to know if a given state has that sort of a situation. And in some ways, I think it's a little bit beside the point because this gets into a whole big discussion about just what are the rights of cities, which I generally think should be more significant. I think in a federalist society such as ours, we should have much broader powers at the local level. So what are some of the states um, that we took off of our list um, to get it down to that 19? There's two that we've taken off our list. Well, in effect, one came off our list, but really two came off of Jim's list. <laughs> this is, boy, this is so much more complicated than I thought it was going to be, and I knew it would be a little bit complicated. We never shaded in California on our official map because California had this provision that rural rural areas where they had what was called the community service district. They had very strict rules that basically prohibited community service districts from building municipal broadband. It was just not feasible under those rules. But almost every city in California could do it. And so we didn't want to confuse people by suggesting there was a barrier in California to the vast majority of the people. Now, under AB 1999 last year, we saw that that one barrier in California was removed. And so we would say there are no barriers in California now. So that was one that came off of Jim's list. It came off of our list, but um, our map had never been shaded red. So people might not have noticed that before. Now, we had shaded Colorado red previously because Colorado has some strict rules that cities can uh, reclaim local authority from uh, in, in terms of cities can basically regain their local authority by passing a referendum. And we've long thought that that was not only discouraging and counterproductive, but a legitimate barrier in the sense that it was distracting cities from being able to build a network. But there's been more than 100 of these referendums. The cities have won every one of those in recent years. I only know of one in which the city did not win, and then it went back two years later. This is Longmont, and they did pass it. And so even though I still think this is a barrier, it is unnecessary, it is counterproductive, it doesn't feel right to suggest that Colorado has some kind of significant barrier that cities and counties should worry too much about. The legislature should clean it up. They probably won't. 
uh, the cable cable and telcos will fight hard to keep it or to get some sort of um, some sort of concession. If we did get rid of it, that would might make things worse. And so Jim Baller and I in talking, um, we both agreed that Colorado should not be considered to have a um, a barrier in practice um, in that sense because it's not um, it's really not had a strong effect in preventing cities from moving forward. Yeah, um, and then there's a few other states where um, the broadband now list lists them as being having these restrictions, but they're not restrictions that we think are actually limiting the authority to build broadband networks. That's right. And so many of these come down to things that I would say that states do or have done that I think are unwise and are bad uh, in terms of encouraging investment in broadband and counterproductive. Um, But, you know, for instance, and I don't know, I don't think these actually all come up, but when Michigan, Tennessee, and um, states like Virginia create a pot of broadband subsidy money, but make it ineligible to municipal networks, I think that's bad. I think that's counterproductive. But I don't think that is a state really limiting local authority. It's, um, I think it's foolish, you know, and I would, I would, but I don't want to, I don't want cities to think, oh, I can't do this, um, you know, because I see there's a red, my state has a red mark on it, mm-hmm. when in fact they can do things. It's just that they don't have access to all of the benefits that the private sector does. And that's, that's a fact of life in municipal broadband networks is that fundamentally you are often at a disadvantage relative to uh, rivals in the market. Sure. Uh, Massachusetts and Wyoming are two of those states that restrict state funding to municipal networks, I believe. Right. And Massachusetts is actually a little bit more complicated in that you're, you're actually correct in that that's how they were categorized by broadband now. At the same time, Massachusetts has given a lot of money to communities, particularly in the western part of the state, to build municipal networks. Um, and so I think it's incorrect to suggest that Massachusetts is on balance discouraging municipal networks. Um, I'm sure that they could make it easier. I'm sure that they could, you know, make it uh, more attractive. Um, But I don't think that Massachusetts should be considered as having a barrier against municipal networks. Wyoming, similarly, they, I mean, we did a podcast with the mayor of Cheyenne, uh, I believe it was last year. Uh, She was terrific talking about what happened with legislation that would have been really good for encouraging cities to get more involved in encouraging competition and investment. But CenturyLink kind of took that process over using its uh, lobbying power. And I would say the, um, uh, you know, some um, decisions made by elected officials that I wouldn't have agreed with in Wyoming um, in order to have um, them shape the program. Now, that said, that program, even though it's not nearly as friendly to municipalities, um, does appear to be working out in favor of more investment from local entities. Uh, I've talked with a couple of ISPs that seem to be pretty happy with the direction that Wyoming program is going. Um, the world's a complicated place. And so even though I wouldn't have encouraged those, I also wanted to say that Wyoming, you know, it seems like it's a program that uh, is resulting in more investment in ways that we would like to see. So another state that has these restrictions that aren't really restrictions is Oregon, uh, which restricts um, a statewide network, I believe. Right. There was a discussion um, I think entirely reasonable within Oregon, if I remember correctly. Boy, sometimes I just think, wow, someone who actually really knows what's going on in Oregon really closely might think, you don't know what you're talking about, Chris. 
I'm sure it's not the first time someone's had that thought. Um, but in Oregon, if I remember correctly, there were uh, maybe the governor, maybe uh, others in the state legislature uh, recognized that the state spends a lot of money on broadband-related services and that if the state was to build its own network and make it open, they could encourage more middle-mile access to be able to make it easier to get across the state. So if you're in a rural area, lower your operating costs, but also lower the capital costs of, of connecting to the wider internet. Uh, some of the rural and independent providers that, that are providing those services today were really upset at that and pushed against it. And that may have resulted in legislation that the state decided um, not to do it or maybe to bind the hands in the future of doing it. But I don't think that's a restriction of localities from being able to move forward. And, and I certainly don't see the, the communities, you know, if you look at the municipal broadband movement in Portland, in uh, Multnomah County more broadly, uh, you know, people that are working toward this in the areas surrounding uh, the Portland metro, they don't seem to think that there's a, a restriction in the state uh, from these kinds of networks. Iowa has, I think, a similar um, situation to Colorado, where municipalities have to hold a referendum before they can start building. That's right. And this is was one of the, the areas in which I've always been a, a little bit annoyed at my lack of intellectual consistency in that we considered a referendum for 50% in Colorado to be a barrier, but not in Iowa. And in part, that was, again, Jim Ball and I talking about this over the years, We've long agreed that in Iowa, there was an established process that it seemed cities were able to navigate. And it was hard to say that it was a significant discouragement because so many municipalities had moved forward. There's a lot of municipal networks in Iowa. So we had not listed Iowa as having a barrier previously because of that reasoning. Um, And we continue to believe that it's not really... Uh, a barrier in the same way that in Minnesota, where you're effectively required having a supermajority vote, or you know, a state like North Carolina, where you just can't do it. And so we felt that Iowa's restrictions, though I think counterproductive for encouraging investment and competition, uh, just don't rise to the level of being a barrier that we should uh, be too worried about. And then one last uh, one here. Oh man, I was hoping we could do this all day. (laughs) Uh, Connecticut, where local governments can't access space on utility poles for free. Correct. Right. So <laughs> Connecticut had this thing, and this is a this is a, a really wonderful deep story that I um, I don't remember if we've captured on this podcast or not before. I think we may have, um, but uh, Senator Beth By in Connecticut, um, state senator, uh, had changed the Connecticut law because previously uh, Connecticut municipalities had what's called the free gain, um, which is that they could have a position on the telephone utility pole in which they could attach uh, their own wires for public safety purposes. And they did not have to pay for that. And she changed the law, or she led an effort to change the law, that said for any purpose, so that municipalities could build a network and use this free spot on the pole. Now, I should just pause for a second to note that Steve Ross and others from like broadband communities would argue that this is not good policy, that in fact, you shouldn't give away free space on utility poles. So I'll just note that for a second. But nonetheless, the law is pretty clear in Connecticut that that the city should get a free space. The Connecticut State Regulatory Authority, Pura, the public utility, utility regulatory agency, I'm guessing, or authority. Sounds right. Yeah. (laughs) They 
decided they didn't much like the law and they read it to say that cities did not get a free space for any reason. And that is an ongoing matter of dispute. You know, it just so happens that um, Comcast is very close with the governor of Connecticut, um, is very powerful. Frontier is headquartered in Connecticut. And for reasons beyond me, for some reason, people in in the state government of Connecticut think that's important to keep Frontier happy as they refuse to invest in the state of Connecticut. <laughs> um, but so there's an ongoing argument as to whether or not this law should be followed um, by the people who are re- required to uphold the laws of Connecticut. But nonetheless, if a Connecticut municipality wants to pay to be on the poll, I think that would follow the same processes. And so therefore, it's just not a barrier against uh, municipal networks in, in a way that I feel like is... Um, is relevant. Now, you know, if you go back and look at this list of broadband now and you just think of it as 26 states that are generally bending over backwards to make life a little bit harder for municipal networks in favor of the companies that spend a lot of money lobbying them, uh, well, that's, I think, I wouldn't dispute much of that list. Um, although I think it's 25 because, again, California was on their list and, um, and they have corrected their report to know that that law is not in effect. But the number 26 just keeps still popping up. <laughs> so I guess it should <laughs> be 25. Um, but yeah, I think I think that we should focus on the 19 states. Um, and um, that's where our effort should be because I just think it's a, it's a much bigger problem than the general states that are just trying to find minor ways of inconveniencing municipalities. Okay, so back to these 19 states then, these barriers. Where'd they come from? Generally from the cable and telephone companies and not only that, the big ones. I mean, I would love it to live in a country in which the small telephone and cable companies had much more power in state legislatures. I may disagree with them on a number of things, but I think their voice should be louder. And the voices of Comcast, Charter, and AT&T and those big companies, really AT&T especially, should be a lot quieter. Um, And so... I do not think we would see nearly this many preemptions if it was just the smaller companies that were saying we'd prefer not to deal with cities doing this. Uh, It's really companies like AT&T and Comcast, Verizon that have put a lot of money into this. They have tons of organizations that churn out papers that justify limiting municipal investment um, that are deeply flawed arguments. Uh, And they have the power to just you know, say these things and, and they'll get caught lying. And then, you know, what are they going to, what are you going to do if you're a state rep? You're going to stop taking meetings with AT&T? I don't think so. You're, you know, uh, so they can say whatever they want and they get away with it. That's where these bills come from. Um, they're not serious arguments that would ever win a, a, an actual debate, uh, but they have money and power on their side. So who is able to remove them? Have we seen any pushback from uh, state leaders or does it always require a grassroots effort from residents? In California, uh, we have officially rolled back the uh, the bill that had, uh, though actually the law that had preempted the community service districts, and that was led by Assembly Member Chow, who did that. Um, you know, we certainly supported him. Electric Frontier Foundation supported him. Ernesto Falcone um, is really focused on a lot of these issues for the EFF, uh, great organization. And so, you know, they led that fight and there was very little resistance. AT&T and others, I think, were more focused on net neutrality in that cycle. So uh, we have a, a positive example 
people there. Um, in Arkansas, we did an interview with Senator Brianne Davis, who is a Republican member of the rural of the R- Women's Caucus, the actually the Republican Women's Caucus of the Senate in Arkansas, and they rolled back their preemption. At first, they were going to be very ambitious with it, and then they decided to roll it back a little bit. Um, after negotiating with industry, with uh, the big carriers in particular. Um, and their goal was to try to really catch the attention of the industry to say, we have a real problem. We need to have all hands on deck. We need much more investment in Arkansas because we need high quality internet access so people can access Medicaid. So we have education improvements and things like that. Um, and so that's a different model. Now in North Carolina, you know, we've been very involved in supporting the North Carolina League of Municipalities in which they've had a very smart campaign focused not on removing the preemption because a um, strong majority of the, um, the state um, legislators in Raleigh, uh, I believe, do not want to fully remove the preemption. But we've argued and believe that if you were to simply roll the preemption back a little bit to allow cities to partner with uh, local cooperatives and independent ISPs, companies like Hotwire and Salisbury, like uh, Open Broadband, um, like the uh, River Street Networks coming from the Wilkes Co-op and, and several others that are making these kinds of investments in North Carolina. We could supercharge it if the local governments were able to um, engage in partnerships and not necessarily to build a network of their own the way Wilson has. You know, I continue to believe that cities should have that option but I don't live in North Carolina. Um, I don't get to vote. And so I respect the fact that they disagree and I work to change their minds. But in the meantime, we um, are focused on what will, uh, what's reasonable to get done to improve rural North Carolina investment. So, you know, those are three areas in which we see ongoing efforts. Um, but fundamentally, we need people to be more energized. People need to reach out to their elected officials on this because elected officials hear from Comcast and AT&T on a regular basis. There's a lot of lobbyists. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times. I mean, in Florida, Texas, I talk to people and they're like, yeah, during session, AT&T has 100 people walking around working on AT&T's agenda, 100 people. So would you say that those lobbyists are the biggest challenge that states face trying to um, get rid of these restrictions? Yeah, and here's why. Because... It's really hard to do something positive. Um, you know, for us to stop the preemption that had been tried in recent years, um, you know, you can create a small, dedicated coalition and you can stop something that you think is wrong. To pass something, you need to overcome the ability of the other side to do that, which may mean, I mean, for Comcast or AT&T, they need to like convince a subcommittee chairperson or a committee chairperson not to bring a bill up or, or you know, convince the Speaker of the House, just don't hear this bill, send the word down that it's dead. Um, and so, you know, we need significant grassroots support to overcome that kind of of power. So it's it's relatively easy in legislation to stop something. It's incredibly difficult. It's not just a matter of having 51% on your side to remove preemption. You'd actually need to have a much bigger uh, coalition. And we see this in North Carolina, where a strong majority of members of the General Assembly have co-sponsored the bill. And leadership refuses to let it move, despite the fact that a majority of Republicans would like to vote yes on this bill. Uh, so anyway, I, I know that not everyone who listens to this cares as much about 
about politics, but it's a significant uphill battle. Um, and frankly, it's one that I'm excited to be having. I mean, we don't do very much lobbying here. We're a 501c3, which means if you give us money, you can deduct it from your taxes because we don't do much lobbying. Um, By the I-L- way, just throw that in there. Right, ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. Um, but what we do is a lot of education activities and developing research that um, is important to make the case for why these policies should change. So, Chris, if you had a magic wand and you could wave away these restrictions in any state. Did Lisa tell you about my magic wand? No. Yeah, I, I guess you're just a magic wand kind of person. If I use it too often, people get suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> that you're a wizard? Or what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, when you look at when you look at my amazing accomplishments, you have to think there's some kind there's of some magic. There's some dark magic going on in this office. <laughs> anyway, Staffley, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, which state would you start in? Is there one with potential that you think could be unleashed by lifting these restrictions? Well. I do like working in North Carolina, and I and in part because there's such an engaged community. I mean, you look at um, the groups like NC Hearts Gigabit, North Carolina League of Municipalities, the Association of Counties, um, a lot of local groups, local businesses. You know, I name check Catherine Rice, one of the people that I worked with um, early in my in my years at ILSR, even getting to know her and the arguments against preemption as she worked so hard to preserve local internet choice in North Carolina. And so I like working in North Carolina, in part also, I mean, it's a state that is very strong on preemption. Um, The legislature there has regularly overruled local authority on matters. Um, And I think if we can demonstrate that this is a um, a, North Carolina recognizes that there are matters in which we need to return power to local authority, uh, that's a pretty powerful statement for everywhere. So, you know, I think that's a good place. Um, It really depends on where movement is happening. Uh, certainly would like to spend more time uh, working in Arkansas now that we see there's there's so much concern. Arkansas is a state that is ranked relatively low and in comparatively in internet statistics and in a number of other statistics, but has a lot of investment. I mean, there's several municipalities that are doing great things. There's electric co-ops that are making a lot of investment. And I think it's a place that also recognizes it just cannot count on massive corporations. As long as I'm just mentioning this, I would like throw out there, but just a place I like working on in general is Maine. <laughs> they don't have any preemption, but uh, they're doing some really smart things. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love going to Maine. We, um, my colleague, Stacy Mitchell, our boss, <laughs> Stacy <laughs> Mitchell, um, is out there. Um, but whenever I think about states I like working in, there's Maine is like Arkansas, a, a state that recognizes the big corporations will not prioritize it. It's just not going to happen. The The big companies are focused on, you know, the the heavily populated coasts. They're they're focused on on just areas that don't resonate like that. Whereas Arkansas, Maine, um, you know, a number of states that are often neglected, they have more of a self-reliant streak. And we want to encourage that and build on it. On the flip side, uh, can you think of any states where there might be new restrictions put in place? Well, I, I worry about Virginia. Um, you know, even as we see a movement to try to roll back the preemption that is there, there is an ongoing effort to try to create more limits. I think that's in part because of the success of people who are um, making uh, a big difference in Virginia. 
um, whether that's uh, the Eastern Shore, where we see a lot of the Eastern Shore connected with a publicly owned authority network. Um, you know, Frank Smith in Roanoke Valley uh, is uh, certainly making a difference there. There's a lot of local networks. There's um, Danville seems to be doing very well. I remember when the first time I went to Danville, I think it had the highest unemployment in Virginia. And it seems like a lot of businesses have moved to Danville in part because of the network they've built. Uh, but and so I don't know if that's why um, some of these sometimes you can't tell from afar why people within a given state may be pushing for these kinds of restrictions. But mm-hmm. it's come up a few times, and I and I worry about that. I worry about Michigan, where we've you know seen certainly seen efforts to limit it. Um, there's several communities in in Michigan that are looking at municipal broadband, and some of the um, you know, groups that are very much in favor of the big incumbents that take money from them or simply are opposed to government generally are working hard to try to uh, stop them uh, from building these kinds of networks. So uh, that's another one that I, I worry about. But in general, you know, I don't really fear that a legislature is really going to enact these so much as I don't relish the idea of wasting my time fighting them. Because I think at this point, people <laughs> look forward to me correcting this in six months and being very disappointed, but <laughs> the state legislatures really do want to see more investment and are recognizing that limiting investment is not the way to get more investment. You know, whenever we do have to fight these things, we try to make it very painful on the other side by not just fighting against preemption, but by using it as an effort to get into the media to make the case for more local authority and more local investment. I think that's one of the reasons we've seen fewer attacks like this is because the cable companies increasingly recognize when they bring this up, they look bad and we get more airtime. And so if they want to keep me off the airwaves, they could just not create controversies and then... And what greater motivation is there? Right. And then then my communications specialist has to stay up late trying to figure out how to get me airtime. <laughs> So that really uh, goes into my final question, which is, it's been status quo for a while, this number. Um, do you think we might see a whole bunch of restrictions being lifted? Do you feel like there's any kind of uh, generating force happening behind this movement? I think we could see the dam break. I also, I mean, this is a time of unpredictability in Washington. And so Anna Eshoo, a representative, uh, U.S. rep from um, the the um, Silicon Valley area, is um, first of all, a true leader in a lot of broadband policy that I agree with, but is advancing um, efforts to um, for the federal government to say states can't preempt local governments. Um, and so that's not something that's going to pass in this session, I don't think, but could lay the groundwork for a future Congress to take it up. It very nearly passed in 2005, I believe it was, when Senator McCain at that time was a champion of it and strongly believed in it. And I can imagine that coming back as we see elected officials trying to do something. I mean, this is something pretty common that we see, which is that this is a hard problem to solve. And not only that, it's a hard problem to solve within an election cycle, which is a motivation for elected officials. So if elected officials are looking around for something that they can then say, I did this thing on broadband, and suddenly they start thinking, if we just repeal this prohibition, I can tell people I'm doing something to encourage investment in broadband. Well, then I could see some of these things changing pretty quickly. And that would be terrific. But right now, I'm just happy that we're having this conversation because several years ago, it didn't seem possible under those terms at that time to imagine where enough elected officials would turn against Comcast and AT&T in order to um, restore local authority. 
Well, thanks for being my guest today, Chris. Thank you for for hosting. I enjoyed your your introduction, although I I don't know. I think it wasn't silly enough. <laughs> Some of us are trying to be professionals in this office, Chris. That was Christopher and our communications specialist, Jess Del Fiaco, reviewing remaining state laws that restrict local internet infrastructure investment. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 368 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. 